This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Hey everyone, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor Doug, and today we have a special treat because one, it's Friday, and B, I thought because we're such good friends that I'd make today a great episode for you. Today we're talking about the biggest mistakes people make when taking on a side job, ways to avoid the next stock market crash, and answering a sad letter about a husband who's given away all of the family's money. And to help us, from the blog Mama Fish Saves, Chelsea. Also, from LenPenzo.com, Justin Timberlake. Oh, come on. Really? You wouldn't believe that, would you? It's, really, it's, it's Len Penzo. I mean, come on. And the author of Control Your Cash, Greg McFarlane. But that's not all. In our FinTech Friday segment, Think Buying Real Estate is Difficult? Well, we're sharing everything you wanted to know about a company that makes it easy called Roofstock with their founders, Gary Beasley and Gregor Watson. And now, because every great show needs a host, here he is, Joe Salciha. And a happy Friday to you. You found us, the Stacky Benjamin Show. Welcome to the start of your weekend. I am Joe Salciha, Average Joe Money on Twitter. What a great show we have for you today. But first, you know what we have that's even better? We've got the link to lower interest rates, lower fees, and more fun. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. Because when you had to magnify money using our link, you know what you'll find? Average person who goes there saves 450 smackaroonies when they head to magnify money. 
By the smackaroo, does everybody use that term? I, I hope so. That's money. $450 cold cash. How about that? 4.5 Benjamins. Is that better? And as we do often on Fridays here, we're going to go to magnify money. I just put it in. Ba-doom. And let's check out savings accounts like we also often do and see what the interest rates have been because they've been holding steady at 1.3. And guess what? They still are. Dollar Savings Direct and Bank Purely, very transparent grade when it comes to their fine print score. I like the fact they have a fine print score. Minimum balance you need is only a buck and they pay 1.3%. Look at how quickly I did that. And then you just scroll down. You've got a few at 1.25, more at 1.25 than we had before. That doesn't surprise me. And then, uh, yeah, a lot of them over 1%. So if you're banking at a brick and mortar, getting that same old 0.6, 0.7, well, you're missing out. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. They also do a lot of other stuff, but we'll tell you about some of that at the midway point in today's show. Hey, we got a fantastic episode for you today. At the midpoint, I can't wait for you to hear about Roofstock because a lot of people, when I was a financial planner, a lot of people didn't do real estate because it was so difficult. And OG and I often talk about the upside of a REIT, uh, which is a real estate investment trust. We talk about that because it seems so difficult. Well, when I heard about Roofstock, I thought we got to have these guys on the show because this is a mind bender what they do. So excited about that about the middle, but also Chelsea from Momfish Saves. We got just a great first Friday back. And we're also going to explain a new take on this eight weeks game. Let's roll. All right, let's walk across the basement here and fire up my dad's shortwave, see if we can get the greatest minds in uh, financial writing. And we'll start with the guy that has a book that I think Len Penzo calls uh, his favorite financial book, and that'd be Greg McFarlane, author of Control Your Cash. Uh, he didn't say it was his favorite. His assessment was less subjective than that. He said it was the best personal finance book he'd ever read. Yeah, I don't think it, that's kind of sticking the landing, isn't it? That's that's it. <laughs> He's eagerly awaiting the follow-up, too, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to take away from the spotlight from you, so you just carry on there, Greg. What is book two going to be, Greg? Is it Control Your Cash Strikes Back or what? Uh, maybe I'll just write an appendix to the first one. I don't know. Right. And the guy who's the, uh, I, I don't know where to go with that, the appendix of this podcast <laughs> in, in Los Angeles, California, it's the one and only Len Penzo from LenPenzo.com. I'd rather be the appendix than the large colon, for example. So I think you did good. I can't complain, Joe. That's Don't call me the large colon of the yeah, podcast. Cause, yeah, because those are fighting words. <laughs> Absolutely, my friend. How are you? Right. I'm good. But you know what, Len? We got a special guest with us tonight. Who's that? And you know what's funny? I don't even know. I don't even know where she is. I know that she is a new voice in the blogging community. Her blog is called Mama Fish Saves. And she started her career on Wall Street, now works as a high-yield debt hedge fund. And we welcome Chelsea to the show. Hey, how's it going, Joe? Fantastic. So where the heck are you? I, I usually try to find out where people are. I have no idea where on earth you are. So I'm in Boston. Gotcha. All right. And high-yield... Chose a slower city after the New York craziness. Right. High-yield debt, though. How Do you have hair? Uh, yeah, at this point. But uh, default rates are really low right now, so we'll see how that is in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get into that? 
So I actually covered metals and mining when I was on Wall Street, which is about as volatile as a sector as you get on the equity side. And I uh, made I the transition over to high yield when we saw a <laughs> ton of defaults in 2014. And I got a call that they needed an expert at this hedge fund in Boston. So I made the move over. Uh, theoretically, it's calmer than equity, but uh, that depends on the time in the cycle for sure. Sure. Right. Well, we're happy to have you. Tell everybody just a little bit about Mama Fish Saves because your blog is nothing to do with any of that. No, it doesn't. So that was my effort to kind of connect back with family finance and answer some of the basic questions that people don't get taught in school and really need to know. My desk job, unfortunately, is uh, making people with billions more money. And I want to focus more a little bit on Main Street. And this is my more my passion. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you could join us tonight and we're going to dig right in. Let's talk about this first piece comes to us from Britain Company. Five biggest mistakes people make when starting a side hustle. Greg, I'm sure that this uh, this phrase side hustle that everybody uses now, that's your favorite phrase, isn't it? I don't know what was wrong with the expression part-time job that seemed to work for generations. <laughs> and I think four of I'm trying to be positive here. I think four of these mistakes that she cites are reasonably valid, but... I'm not just saying this to be contrarian, but I don't know that you, she says, you have to love what you do. I don't think you necessarily have to love what you do. I mean, one of my side hustles is voicing radio commercials. It is way too lucrative for the actual work involved. I almost feel guilty for billing my clients for something that anyone with a decent set of pipes can perform. Now, do I love standing in front of a microphone and reading a script? I don't hate it, but I certainly don't have a passion for it. I mean, I'm a professional about it. I will emphasize the right syllables. I will do take after take until I get it at a level that both the producer and myself are happy with. But it's not like when I was 11 years old, I was lying in bed dreaming about joining the ranks of the commercial readers. In other words, I chose that work, that line of work precisely because it was a moneymaker and the author says I'm somehow misguided there. Yeah, but don't you find, uh, Chelsea, we'll go to you, because I think, is Mama Fish Saves your first blog? It is my first blog. And so you're kind of new to the online community. It seems to me there's a ton of people who are blogging, a ton of people working online that don't really care anything about the topic. They're just there to get rich quick. Yeah, I think the difference is, is it a side hustle for a part-time job to make a little extra money, or are you trying to be an entrepreneur and start a business? If you're going to have to commit 40, 50 hours a week to really start a business off the ground, you better love it, because otherwise you're going to burn out fast. If it's just really side money and a part-time job, I'm with, you know, you can do whatever. Yeah. Alain, uh, you're the opposite of Chelsea. You're the old man on the internet. They built the internet around <laughs> you. <laughs> you like me, you see a ton of people that are doing stuff that they, you know, that, that just trying to get rich quick and don't really have any, I don't know, any heart in the game. You know, it's kind of hard to get rich quick if you don't have heart in what you're doing. I mean, if you really want to get rich, because, you know, if you have the passion for something, you're going to put the extra effort in, you're going to put those hours in, and it doesn't seem like a job, so to speak, right? So uh, it's a lot easier to to make money when you're doing that. So even blogging, I mean, it's no secret here. You you know, we can make a little money here when we do our blogging. How much you make, though, you do have to put a lot of time into it and a lot of effort. And uh, you have to enjoy it. Otherwise, uh, and you have to stick with it because there's a lot of side hustles you'll do that don't make money right away. You got to have persistence, yeah. right? Yeah. And maybe that's one of the things that she or whoever wrote this here. Uh, persistence. Don't quit too soon especially if you enjoy what you're doing, because the money should start coming. 
Greg, it says they don't network, and it seems to me that the voiceovers, even though I hear what you're saying, that it isn't something you, quote, love, it is something you had a network behind, though, so it was easy for you to get into. Uh, yeah, guilty as charged. I didn't, I didn't just show up one day and say, hey, do you guys need anybody new? It was connections that I had built for years, not even with the intention of, hey, I might need to milk these somewhere down the road. It, it just came kind of naturally. And just for the record, I, I never attempted to make money with my blog. It was just a place to say things that nobody else online happened to be saying, or at least happened to be saying without any decorum. Yeah. And Greg, that's the same thing for me. I mean, I never went into this trying to make money at all. And, and of course, I didn't for the first two years anyways, but it just started coming anyways. So I think most people who are longtime bloggers probably didn't go into it for the money. They did it just so they could have a voice and hopefully somebody would read them. Yeah. yeah, and let's not forget, this woman is a life coach. She could probably find several thousand bad habits in my life that are worth coaching me out of. <laughs> Chelsea, when it came to your blog, did the thought of making money on Mama Fish Saves, did that cross your mind? It actually didn't cross my mind, to be honest. I knew nothing about blogging. I started the blog, launched it, bought hosting in about six hours, jumped into it, and then learned more about it down uh, as, I, as I got going, but it was not the main focus at all. Was that uh, six hours after uh, a couple alcoholic beverages? <laughs> it was not. Believe it or not, it was a snow day, and we were stuck in the house, you know, Boston, big snowstorm, and we were looking for something to do, and I'm in a mom's group. I have a 16-month-old son, and I had the same 200 women asking me the same questions about their finances and investments all the time. And that was the spur of like, all right, maybe I just write it once <laughs> that, instead of over and over again. That's got to drive you crazy with what you do. I'm sure plane rides are painful if you tell somebody what you do. Yeah. It, it, you know, sometimes you get the interesting stories of the fun stuff, uh, visiting mines and going underground to coal mine. Not many people get to run one of those machines uh, down underground, but the actual day-to-day -day operations, nobody wants to talk about that. Right. right. <laughs> I want to ask you, Greg, you know, this idea of five biggest mistakes people make when starting a side hustle. The one, the one mistake I don't see on here is I think sometimes the side hustle can take away from your main job. Do you agree? I think so. It depends how seriously you want to take it. Again, if you're like me and you use the antiquated term part-time job, you understand what it entails and what the parameters of it are. I think people use the term side hustle. They don't really, it's, it's amorphous. It's not terribly well-defined. And yeah, it's easy to pour hours into it without any return and then wonder why it's not working for you or try to justify it. But still, the big thing here, Len, I think is this last point, they don't begin. Yeah, well, how many people do that, put things on paper and, and uh, say, one of these days, one of these days I'm going to do it, and they just don't do it. It's easy to not do something. But, you know, once you take that first step on anything, it just kind of, if you can just get that first step, everything else will kind of follow. You just got to get started. So, yeah, that, that's a really good point. Let me bring up another point that might a mistake that wasn't on here possibly if you have a side hustle. Sometimes people have side hustles and they're afraid to put money into their side hustle. You'd be surprised sometimes you got to spend a little money to make a little extra money on your side hustle. So uh, don't be afraid to spend money too. Chelsea or Greg, any other mistakes that weren't on here that you think people make when they're doing their part-time job thing? Uh, I think I can think the quotes by John Aiko. I can't remember exactly, but it's comparing your beginning to other people's middle and is looking online at all the money people are making at blogging or freelance writing and feeling like you're not ramping fast enough instead of just putting your head down and doing the work. Uh, you get discouraged and you, and you drop out too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that way on this podcast every week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Greg, how about you? Uh, honestly, God, I was going to say pretty much the same thing. It, if you're going to do it, stick it out or at least or at least give yourself a reasonable cutoff date. 
We're going to stick with you for a second longer, Greg, because we're going to our second piece of the day. This one comes to us from Seeking Alpha, written by George Schneider. Seven ways to fortify your portfolio against the next crash. There's a crash coming, Mr. McFarlane. I know there is. Yeah, I know. And Joe, I was thinking that a great way to fortify against that would be buying lots and lots of gold. It is a great original idea that I have that no one else on this <laughs> panel better think of or claim as his own. That's all mine. <laughs> I'm going to ask Chelsea next because I'm not going to the guy that he might be talking about. Uh, Chelsea, lots and lots of gold. Is that the best way to fortify your portfolio against a crash? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I hate gold investing. Uh, right. <laughs> just wrote a piece about this recently. I just like I think it's a hedge against inflation, but otherwise it's not an investment. It's completely bolstered by investors right now. There's no way to set a real price on it because the actual demand for it is only a tiny portion of the market. And if you look at how much investment is taking up of gold supply today this versus what it was 10 years ago, it's massively different and it's it can be a huge bubble. I think the biggest way is either to decide you want to hide in safe investment grade bonds or, you know, hold a little extra cash to be ready to jump, take in on the jump. But seriously, like if you're still 15, 20 years out from retirement, I think this is the only situation in the world where sticking your head in the sand is the best way to go of set an automated investment plan and run with it. Len Penzo, what do you think of Chelsea now? Yeah, Joe, uh, I was just going to say that was the shortest uh, <laughs> romance that I've ever had, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think fortifying your portfolio against a crash talk to me len uh well there's lots of ways to fortify and that's the first there's a lot of things you can do for example you can invest in stocks that don't tend to that, that people are always interested in and buying no matter how the economy is right for example you might want to go into some utilities or go into agricultural stocks of something of food foods uh you know um what else is there things like coca-cola is always a good one right people are always going to drink coca-cola medical stocks stuff like that you can do that if you still have faith in the dollar and bonds even though bonds are in a 35-year bull market hey bonds are going to if you think that's going to be people run to bonds in times of when stocks are bad and then of course there's if you're like me and you think it's a bigger problem and you think that there's a problem with the currency and you're uh, you're afraid of a currency failure, then go to your precious metals. Precious metals aren't really so much as an investment as they are insurance. So, you know, most people, unless you've done a lot of research, I, I wouldn't recommend you do anything more than five or 10%. But if you've done the research and uh, you, you feel comfortable putting more, go ahead. But, uh, you know, that's, it's a very personal thing. And, and it's something that you're really looking, you're really betting on a huge collapse as opposed to just a stock market collapse. So, Greg, uh, George here in this piece goes over seven different ways to protect your downside in a market collapse. Which one of these is your favorite? Well, uh, seriously, though, as somebody who is an aficionado of single stock investing, I think you have to assume that your investments are not going to crater and lose half their value. And if you did your research in the first place, that almost certainly shouldn't happen anyway. Now, that being said, I mean, for an example, one of my positions is in McKesson. It is a medical devices maker. Now, if I read tomorrow that the CEO of McKesson was caught spying for ISIS, let me ask you, what would you do? If I found out that the... <laughs> if, I, if I found out what? If the CEO of McKesson, this is pretty unlikely, yeah, was caught yeah. spying for ISIS... You got. You guys need to take my hypothetical seriously. In in terms of selling off the company, like yeah, if like, you had a position in it, like like would I sell off the company? Yeah, I think I would. 
Okay, because I wouldn't do a thing. I figure the board will fire him. They will go to great lengths to find a replacement with an extremely bland outside life to replace the outgoing CEO. And life will go on after a hiccup that will last a few weeks at most. One less. uh, Well, let's take the Wells Fargo situation. You know, Wells Fargo, after that horrible problem they had, the board took no action. Well, Wells Fargo pretty much has they're a different case because as they've proven, they are part of an oligopoly and they can they can rely on the Treasury Department to keep them solvent no matter what. Where I was going with this, though, is on the other hand, if I were to find out that McKesson had been selling poisonous generic antidepressants at its retail outlets, then I would jump ship in a heartbeat. Now, would they have to file that in their 10Q filing or are you going to read about that in the in the New York Times? I'm going to read about it in the New York Times, and not that that is necessarily the worst thing that the company could do. And if they did, I mean, obviously, it's going to be accidental and without malice. But public relations are such in 2017 that a move like that would be all but impossible to come back from. In 1982, seven people died from taking poison Tylenol, which obviously Johnson & Johnson had nothing to do with. They rebounded. Today, that would never happen. What do you say, Chelsea, to people that say that they're going to jump out of the market and wait until things get better and then jump back in? You're never going to make up the loss. <laughs> you can't time the market. You're best off just leaving the money in, letting it cycle through, then trying to time it. There's endless evidence that we jump out at the wrong point and jump in uh, jump in at the wrong point. Hey, Chelsea, I have a theory. Can, and Al, since you're a, you're a professional that used to do this kind of stuff, let me ask you my, if my theory holds water. I say wait for the fall to begin and jump out when you're pretty sure that you're at the top and it starts plummeting. There's going to be a dead cat bounce. Wait for the dead cat bounce and then sell. Are you talking single stocks or index funds? I'll say index funds. I guess it doesn't matter. But yeah, index index funds. He's talking about the market in general. I think you're. Yeah. Yeah. I still think you're best off waiting through the cycle. I think any kind of in and out trading is. What if you're you're like me though? What if you're like me and I'm 53 and I'm getting close to retirement? It, it takes, you know, I don't know how long the down is going to be. And then I, how long do I have to wait just to get back to where I was? You know what the good news think- is, Chelsea, that uh, Lem was sure that that downturn started Look, five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the good news. I mean, he's good at this. Actually, four years ago, but yeah, who's counting? <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the problem. I think I think you take out enough that you got a year or two of cash if you're really close to retirement and you're worried about it. But I don't think you come all the way out. So, does he put more bonds in his portfolio? Is he get? I mean, does he mitigate risk that way? Kind of land the plane approach. Yeah, I think as you as you get closer, you should definitely rotate into more bonds just for security's sake. But being out of the market entirely, just a risk. Yeah. What about the type of stuff that you do, the high yield bond market? So the high yield bond market overall is more correlated to the stock market than it is to investment grade. You run higher default rates, you run other issues. It's also just a less liquid market than IG because you're running smaller companies. There's not a lot of options to do that from a personal investment basis. For us right now, the market's so tight, uh, similar to investment grade that you're not actually picking up that much return to take the high yield risk versus IG which makes it difficult you know, for us in our job day to day, but then also just not worth it for, for the average investor. Gotcha. Got to take a quick break from talking with the gang to say a big thank you to everybody who's gone to our sponsor site. What, what am I thanking you for? You should be thanking me because 65% of Americans can save $450 on average, says the site. When they head to Magnify Money, use our link, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money, so they know that we sent you. 
There's everything from balanced transfers to cashback rewards, 0% interest credit cards, low interest credit cards, secured cards. If you're just trying to get your credit in order, CDs, savings accounts, checking accounts, personal loans, student loan refinance, auto loans, bam, it's all there. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. And by the way, we talk about balanced transfers. Let me tell you that strategy and how that works. So when you head to magnify money, let's do this. I just clicked on best offers for balanced transfers. You have a balance on a credit card that's at a high rate. All right. You got that? And I click on magnify money and it says that uh, I can use the Barclay card ring MasterCard. Their fine print score is an A. The transfer duration is 15 months and there's a 0% fee and it's a 0% rate. What that means is for the next 15 months, I get 0% on that credit card. So I'm not paying the man anything while I'm paying that off. And over the 15 month period, if I've got $5,000 in debt, I'm gonna save $621 in interest on average during that promotional period. So here's what I do. I make sure I've cut up the old card. I get this new Barclay card ring MasterCard. I cut that up too, right? Because the big problem with people spending money on credit is that they don't have the systems in place to get it down, to get down a real strategy. And you know when you don't have the systems down because I was that guy. I ruined my credit right out of college and I had to learn not to touch that stove and then carefully how to put systems in place so I can use credit myself. So cut up the Barclay Ring MasterCard so you can't use it immediately, but roll the money over to this new card. And now you've got a 0% fee on that for the first 15 months, pay off as much as you possibly can. And then depending on what the interest rate goes to after that, do the same thing with a different card. That's how you avoid paying lots of extra money to other people and get that debt paid off more quickly. I mean, if I could save 600 bucks, amazing. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. All right. I first heard about Gary Beasley and uh, Gregor Watson from a friend of mine when we were talking about real estate. And I was talking about how it's so difficult to be a landlord for some people. <laughs> this guy said, you know, you haven't heard of Roofstock. I'm like, what the heck's Roofstock? So I look into Roofstock and I find out what it's all about. And well, let's just let you hear. If you've ever thought about being a landlord, uh, this might be for you. Here we go. Let's say hello to Gary Beasley and Gregor Watson coming on down to the basement. And coming down to the basement team, Roofstock, the co-founders, Gary Beasley and Gregor Watson. Welcome to the party, guys. Thanks a lot. Good to be here, Joe. So, Thanks for having us. Yeah. So tell me, uh, where did the idea for Roofstock come from? Were you guys out drinking late one night and said, let's go buy some houses? <laughs> well, yes, but that's not how we came up with Roofstock. Uh, Gary and I both, our background was in institutional investing. I've kind of always been an entrepreneur and managed money for big institutions, family offices, et cetera. And we both got into buying single family houses and renting them out. And during the downturn, we bought about $4 billion worth of homes across the country at different companies. And I actually had 1500 homes in Dallas and we were looking to sell 500 of them. And uh, I, so I started calling local brokers and I called this lady and I said, Hey, you know, I've got 500 homes that I want to sell. They're all rented out. And she said, I don't have 500 signs. And I just started laughing. I'm like, that's your biggest issue. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm giving you $50 million transaction. You're wrong about, answer. You're worried yeah. about signs. <laughs> so I called the next, the next broker and the guy said, look, I, you know, I'd love to sell the homes, but 
when are you going to move everybody out? And I said, this, this is crazy. We've done all the hard work. We've renovated the homes. We've got great tenants in here. We're producing real cash flow. The best buyers are likely not someone else in Dallas. It could be someone in Hong Kong or New York or San Francisco that's looking for yield. And so I said, this is the real global market opportunity here. And so, you know, kept thinking about it, thinking about it. I ended up selling those homes in Dallas and it costs us about a total leakage of about 10%. So brokerage fees, moving the tenants out, not collecting rent for a while. Then I met Gary and we were friendly competitors and we started talking about just the issues of selling these rented houses. And Gary came up with the great idea of making it more of a transaction platform, not just a marketing site. And so we here we are today. Well, the frustrating part, as you guys know, I mean, I'm speaking to the choir here with a lot of people that I've met that want to get into real estate is how do you evaluate the right property, right? And then going through that negotiation, the, the upkeep, like I want to be a renter, but I don't want to do all that work, right? And that's, I think that's what you guys solve. Yeah, that's right. So uh, really what we're trying to do with Roofstock is separate the whole idea of operations from investing. So if you want to be an investor in this asset class, you go to Roofstock and you could see homes that have been fully vetted and inspected. They're already leased and cash flowing. And we hook you up with certified property managers in those markets who we have we have vetted. And they take over the property management. So all of the, the rent collection, repair and maintenance, leasing, all that's handled locally. And then we monitor that information and, and provide it to our customers through our app so to make sure that the performance is there. So we really don't have to to be an expert to get exposure through us. Yeah, I think a big part of it was because we had bought so many houses you know, on our own, we realized, okay, what does it really take to buy a home? You need to understand what's broken in the house needs to be fixed. Is there any structural issues? That's part of our certification process, making sure there's no issues on the home. If there are issues, it doesn't get certified. Then is the, is the tenant a good tenant? Do they, they have a good credit score, background check, income? And are they gonna pay, the, basically they're gonna pay their rent. Once you've got those two things figured out, then you, you're looking for an area in the country that you want to invest in and you can invest. But it's not an emotional buy like it would be for a, a home that you're going to live in where you fall in love with the countertop or the backyard. You're looking at what's the data? What's my return? Where do I want to invest? So I think we've built people's thirst, so we should probably start from the beginning. So when somebody goes to Roofstock, what happens? I go there and what, what, what's next? Mostly magic. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, we, um, so if you take a step back and you say, okay, if I, most people you talk to, you're a cocktail party, they want to be a landlord. They, they like the idea of it, but they don't want the headache. They just, it's just, it's intimidating to say, okay, I live in San Francisco. I want to buy some rental property, but I don't really want to, it doesn't make sense to own rental, rental property in San Francisco because you already have your primary residence there. But the idea of buying something in Dallas is, okay, you're going to get on a plane. You're going to go meet a broker. You're going to make an offer on 10 homes. You're going to get two that get accepted. Now you got to find a contractor to tell you what's wrong at the house. Let's say you get through all that and you buy that house. You got to do the work. Then you got to find a landlord, uh, a property manager to rent it up. And you're five months away from cash flow. It's just, there's just too much work. You've got your day-to-day -day job. What Roofstock does when you, you go onto the site, we've taken all of that barrier, the geographic barrier, the, the unknowns off the table, and it allows you to acquire a home you know from your laptop yeah and the, the rather than it, it acquiring something with an estimated rent it's already rented right so someone's paying a market rent the inspection report tells you how much capital it needs you could do all the other research really about neighborhoods schools 
all that right right through our site. And then the other last piece that we solved, which has been very helpful for people buying out of market, was we do 3D uh, tours uh, of the homes that strips out the furniture. So you could actually be basically flying through these homes from anywhere you're sitting and, and seeing what the floor plan looks like and comparing these various assets. So really kind of solving those that kind of last mile is what we've been focusing on here. So I go to Roofstock, then I look at a bunch of different properties in any community where Roofstock is, and then I decide which one I want to buy. I then buy it through the site? Yes. Yeah, it's it's a full end-to-end -end platform. So you, you can buy it. We you know Our goal is to make this uh, basically like Amazon, where you could buy these homes like books. And we're, we're on our way. You, you do buy it in an e-commerce e environment. You put it in your cart. And you move through the closing process. You sign your documents through DocuSign, and it's a complete end-to-end -end process. We're squeezing out a lot of the time and friction and cost in buying homes. There's no reason it should take you 45 or 60 days to close on a, on a property investment, and that's what we're really focused on. I'm laughing because I'm thinking about 900 square feet in my shopping cart. That's the biggest <laughs> biggest shopping cart I've ever had. That's so I think that so the the, the when we came up with the idea, we knew institutional investors would would love this because it, you you get rid of a lot of the the GNA or the overhead of running a big company. Yeah, um, you get access to properties that have cash flow, uh, and someone else has done you know a lot of the the hard the heavy lifting. We weren't sure that retail investors would get comfortable with it, so we, we were going to throw a party, and we didn't know if people would show up. And because uh, Gregor's had a lot of that experience in yeah, his life, I've thrown a lot of parties <laughs> where I was the only one there, but. Uh, yeah, this is doesn't mean he didn't have a good time. <laughs> yeah, it has, uh, has nothing, to do, with, nothing uh, to do with real estate either. Yeah, right. right. So but look, we so we, we did it and the retail investor, we, we weren't spending money on marketing. People started showing up and saying, this is something I've been waiting for. This makes so much sense. How come people haven't thought of it before? You guys, you guys take a lot of the, the things that are scary in buying an investment property off the table. You've done all the work on the asset itself, but then you've also done all of the diligence around the and provided all the data around the neighborhoods, the neighborhood scoring, the crime, the school scores. It's all right there. So, you know, we threw a party, people showed up and so far it's been a good party. If I'm ready to sell the house, let's say it's time for me to liquidate. How does that work? Yeah, it works the same way. So we already have information on the property because it's already been certified once. So we just put it through a recertification process. You could list it right back on Roofstock. Or if you want, you could it's your your house, so you could you could live in it or or sell it, you know, through other channels if you if you'd like to pay a lot more. But we have it set up so it's pretty easy to remarket it right through Roofstock. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that when I first heard of, of Roofstock, I had to ask the guy I was talking to three times, I own the deed. He's like, "Yeah, it's your deed." But I don't do anything. No, no, you don't have to do anything. I suppose I could if I wanted to because it's yep. my house. But you guys will take care of it end to end. Yeah, that's right. Our goal is as a marketplace, we don't own these houses. Our whole goal is transparency and reducing friction and cost. And so we provide you the information, the ability to transact electronically and then monitor the asset on a go forward basis through our app. But at each point in the process, it's up to you whether you want to use our insurance that we've certified and negotiated deal on your behalf, or you want to use the financing partner that's integrated into our site or use someone else. It's all about options. If we are not providing the best in class product and service, then you should go elsewhere. But yeah, for now, everyone's been very, very and, and while we're striving to make it super easy where you could just do it all yourself, we do have uh, advisors that you can talk to. And so a lot of people choose, especially when they buy their first house, 
they search, they find a home or, or maybe some homes they like, and then they'll they'll reach out and, and we'll chat with one of our advisors and get a little bit more information. Some people just, they've never heard of Roofstock, so they want to talk to somebody yeah. and they could sort of, so if, if, if the type of person who wants a little bit more handholding, we could provide that additional level of service. I think what we're finding is people on average now are buying almost two homes per customer because there's financing available. So you could buy a $100,000 home with only $20,000 down. So a lot of people come and end up buying multiple homes. The second or third home, that what we're finding is a lot of them are just doing it on their own now, self-service. Sure. Yeah, right. just through the platform. A couple of questions that I'm sure some people driving down the road as they're listening to this are asking, why would somebody buy one house versus invest in a REIT? I'm sure it's a whole different animal. Yeah, well, I used to run a REIT. I, I ran a public REIT. So my answer is slightly different now that, <laughs> that I'm not running one. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what's good about REITs and, what's, and, and how it compares to what we're doing. The advantage of REITs is you get broad diversification and really good liquidity, right? But the disadvantages are that the dividends tend to be rather low because there tends to be a lot of overhead associated with running these big platforms. You can't use a lot of leverage because the public markets don't like leverage. And so if you look at the REITs, uh, oftentimes the dividends are two or 3%, sometimes less. When you own the real estate directly, there's very low cost. You can pick your markets you want exposure to. You could lever it up to 80% instead of maybe 40%. And because there's less overhead, your distribution might be twice as much on a regular basis. It's still the most liquid real estate asset out there, so you can still get liquidity relatively quickly. I think one of the big the big differences between a REIT and owning uh, homes through Roofstock is uh, the correlation. So if you're you're invested in a REIT, you are correlated. It's counterintuitive, but you are correlated to the stock market because you are a stock. So market goes down, you go down. Right. But you're invested in an uncorrelated asset class. So owning real estate. Is not necessarily is not correlated to the stock market. So, if you are nervous about where equities are today and they are very elevated, and you want good, strong, passive income, owning real estate is a great way to do it. It's just been difficult to get access to it in scale. Do I have to be an accredited investor to use Roofstock? No, you do not. Okay. And then the third question, and by the way, I should define some of these terms for people. REIT, guys, is a real estate investment trust. I didn't say that. I jump into the jargon and don't explain it. A REIT is a real estate investment trust where you own a bunch of different pieces of real estate. And I guess I'll just leave that that right there for now. An accredited investor is someone that meets some certain thresholds. Uh, and some people we have on to talk about their cool fintech, you have to be an accredited investor. So that's 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 cool that you don't have to be. What about something really bad happens to the property? You know, let's take the market downturn, guys. You guys opened up talking about that. I own this property. The market, the market goes down. It's it's yeah. it's my property. It, it is your property. So so give you an example. During the last downturn, uh, prices nationally dropped, you know, 30, 35%. In the Far East Bay, where we got started buying properties, it dropped over 50 to 60%. Yet rents did not fall, even though the the value of the homes dropped. So the the yields on the properties actually went up. So it created a really good entry point to buy properties. But as long as you're not overly levered or you don't have to sell the home during that downturn, you're not really impacted because you're already you've got your your tenant locked in and there's there tends to be more rental demand during those downturns. So it's actually when you if you're worried about a real estate correction, uh, I think most people would view that as an opportunity to sort of buy more properties at more attractive yields and then you know finance them appropriately. One of, one of the things, too, is when you we went back over multiple decades and looked at where what rents happen in each recession. Each recession rents, you know, were flat to up. So 
if you're going into a home that's got cash flow, positive cash flow on it, so you don't have a negative carry, then in a downturn, it's actually going to be one of those assets that's outperforming. So you're not going to end up in a situation where people are getting foreclosed on because you have positive income. Mm -hmm. So it's actually pretty resilient in a downturn. Yeah, some of those stories that you hear about is if people had, say, floating rate financing that was readjusting right. during the bad part of the cycle, right. you get upside down very quickly. And like many homeowners, I think a lot of those people lost their investment properties. We encourage people to really think about fixed rate, longer term financing, or, or you know, some people use no financing at all. But if you're going to put financing on it, it's relatively cheap long-term money that's it's a you know can be accretively financed and it's a great way to to build a portfolio and then uh last question and i'm running way over because this has uh, been really cool how do you guys make money we make money principally from fees that the sellers pay to sell their properties through our platform we typically charge between a, a, a one and a half and two and a half percent of the property value and we charge a half a point from the buyers to use our marketplace and for that, you get access to all the certification materials, the inspections, diligence reports, things like that. So back in our old world, uh, we paid four or five percent typically of cost to do that with our own platforms of allocated overhead. And on the sell side, obviously, a traditional broker charges five or six percent plus, you know, the lost income, et cetera. So. We, we really are you know, squeezing sort of costs out of both sides. And that's part of what we're, we're seeing is the sellers are willing to sell for less because their net dollars are much higher. And then just baked into that is the fees associated with the property management company, like finding them for me and getting the renter for yes. me, that kind of thing? We, we don't charge for any of the services. In fact, what we do is we go out and we negotiate bulk pricing with our property management partners. We say, hey, guys, we're going to give you – we're not going to charge you, but we're going to give you – lots of business if you're good, but you need to give institutional pricing to our retail clients. So what may cost 10 to 12% of revenue to a retail guy off the street might be 7% through our platform. And all those are built into the underwriting on our site. So if you see the expenses on there, the market property management fees are already accounted for Insur in the expenses. Insurance is the same deal. If you go get insurance on your prop on a property and you're a retail guy, you might spend $1,500 a year for the insurance through our platform, you'll be 750. Gotcha. The site is Riffstock.com. If you're out walking the dog or uh, on the drive into work, we'll have the link in the show notes at StackingBenjamins.com. Gary and Gregor, thanks for hanging out with us today, man. Yeah, Enjoyed thank it. You. Thanks, Joe. For more on Roofstock, head to Roofstock.com. Really enjoyed the bluntness of those guys, didn't you? Just, uh, you can do it all yourself. They can help as little or as much as, as possible. I like it when companies have expertise and they're not afraid of you handling the parts that you're comfortable with. But for, for me, I'd let them do everything. I'm a landlord on one house and uh, I'll tell you, even the little bit that I have to do there, I would prefer something like a roof stock. All right, let's get back to our incredible conversation with our roundtable game. Guys, let's move on to our third and final piece, uh, the one that I call Greg McFarland's favorite, the moneyologist column. What we do here is I don't really care what the moneyologist says. I want to ask the three of you to answer this moneyologist question from MarketWatch. Here's the question. To dear moneyologist, I've been married for 24 years. I have four children, two who have finished college and two that will soon start college. I've stayed at home to raise the children while my husband's been a successful career man. He said for many years his income's enough for us to have a comfortable life in retirement. He said I should stay home and concentrate on raising the kids and managing the household since he travels for business. 
Around our 20-year mark of marriage, he started donating money to a church overseas he's never attended or visited, nor does he personally know those who run it. He's donated several hundred thousand dollars, more than 300000 by wire transfer, all of which have been borrowed. It has not stopped, no matter how much I express concern and disapproval for all the debts incurred. He doesn't share my concern for how we'll pay the remaining eight years of our mortgage, college, and other bills in the coming years, and says I worry too much. I'm now the third wheel of my marriage and finances, and as, religious, as his religious leader dictates how much money he needs to donate as well as other things. He now says the money he earns is his to do as he pleases, and I should not protest his donations. I believe both partners in a marriage should have equal say in the finances and other major life decisions, no matter their earnings. He used to think so, too. This place is a temple, name withheld. I believe it to be a scam, but my husband doesn't agree. He says I'm not spiritual and therefore cannot understand or appreciate what the donations will do. He's been told the donations will be used to perform special ceremonies for his ancestral spirits. He will be blessed because of this, and he'll make his own business. He says his business will earn him $53 million because of the special prayers the monk is performing for him. None of the money's used for things like food for the poor or shelter for the homeless. It all goes to, quote, special ceremonies. Is this blackmail? Is he planning a divorce? Or is he falling for this church? He's never visited the, the country he's sending the money to, nor does he speak the language. Uh, Chelsea, we're going to give you the first crack at this, at this one. What do you think? This is time to get help. It's whether it's family members or a local clergyman or something. This is like, this needs to be an intervention of like, this sounds like he's either fun hook, line and sinker, or you need to figure out what's really going on. I mean, incurring debts to send money overseas is just never a good sign, both for mental health or, you know, obviously for financial reasons. So what do you do? Is this a, when you say get help, you mean get a pro involved? I mean, first, you know, if he's got siblings or if he's got grown children that can help at least have the conversation with him, get a bunch of people that care about him in one room to say, what in the world are you doing here is the starting point. And then I think it's getting a you know financial advisor or somebody in the door of how much risk are you as the wife getting put at here? You know, in most cases, debt is going to be incurred equally by both, even if it ends up as a divorce. She's got to start protecting herself. Uh, but if this is a mental health issue, you know, you, you need help. Yeah, Len. So are you with Chelsea? Uh, get the family together and gang tackle him? Yeah, I, this is this is, you know, I for the wife, this is really serious because, you know, the fact is she doesn't have a job. Right. So she's or she's a state home. I shouldn't say she doesn't have a job, but her, her husband's been the, the main breadwinner and he is squandering everything here. So something needs to be done. And I don't know. I'd almost say go get a freaking lawyer. I mean, this is very bad because uh, clearly <laughs> this, this, this could leave her in big trouble. You uh, saying get a lawyer, just, get a lawyer against him, like divorce? Start yeah, divorce? I think, uh, you know, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how to handle this. I mean, it, it looks like she's talked to him. He's not listening. He's doing stupid things like borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars to give to it. Uh, this, this, whatever this, cult is and uh you know and she has no she's really vulnerable here and this is this is scary as you know as somebody who's my wife's a stay-at-home mom and this is this is terrible i can't even imagine the position that this man is putting this woman in right now so if i was her i'd say go get a lawyer and see what you could do to stop this if you have to put a freeze on the accounts or, or what have you but greg his business is going to make 53 million dollars because he's being blessed by this month <laughs> You know, if your wife of 24 years is stifling your lifestyle, just just have an affair. <laughs> Way cheaper than sending money to a Buddhist temple in Bhutan and more tangible rewards, too, I think. 
This is a great question, and I'm assuming that it's as fictional as all the other ones Money All just runs, but it is pretty creative. Now, what I want to know is what the husband's or what the couple's net worth is. If it's in the eight digits, then the wife probably has nothing to worry about. But then again, if it was, she wouldn't be seeking advice from a website. Uh, she mentions that the husband makes 175 grand a year, which doesn't tell you what their net worth is, but it does narrow it down a little. The important thing here is she lives in California, community property state. She could yep. take this letter verbatim, give it to a divorce lawyer, and probably live happily ever after. If this husband is this big of a nut, the case should be quick. And I'm guessing that he would not want to publicly disclose that he hooked up with a cult. So, yeah, my recommendation is divorce. Never mind about the romantic aspect of it or lack thereof. Divorce is the financially prudent thing to do here. Chelsea, both guys on the on the panel went, went to it's time for divorce. You on that train? No, I don't think divorce is the wrong answer. I just I'm concerned from someone who has, you know, experience with some mental health, both in the family and with friends. I'm more concerned of like what happened in his personality that in the last couple years he has fallen for a cult because normally that's not a sign of either his personality has always been such that he was going to do something like that and she should have seen it coming or something has changed and he needs help yeah even if divorce is the answer i think you know someone needs to get involved yeah uh, you know what I found interesting is she's asking, is he planning a divorce? Right. You know, it's, I don't think <laughs> she's the one that should be doing it. I found I found that weird. And and Greg, uh, to your point, maybe uh, the money I'll just had to think hard to create that little scenario. <laughs> so maybe, maybe it is real. It's as realistic as anything I've ever seen in the money I'll just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty wild. I think we're going to stick a fork in this one, guys. We are done. We're going to give our guests the last word. So, Greg. What's happening with you? Are you doing any writing anywhere right now? I'm getting my other knee operated on as soon as ah. that's done, because you need your knees to use a computer. Absolutely. Then uh, maybe we'll see something new and control your cash. Awesome. Makes total sense. Uh, Len Penzo, what's happening over there at the crazily titled LenPenzo.com? At LenPenzo.com and my sister blog, ThePersistentIch.com, 33 reasons why your finances are a mess. 33? Yeah, I could only think of 33. That's great. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes at stackybenjamins.com. Chelsea, And thanks. gold wasn't one of them, it was Chelsea. <laughs> Chelsea, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Absolutely. Great to be here. Well, tell everybody what's happening at uh, Mama Fish Saves. So there, we recently talked about the retirement savings gap and gender gap and why it's time to close it. We're going to be publishing a bunch of stories about uh, financial awakening stories of both stay-at-home moms and working moms and what got them interested in finance and saving for retirement. Uh, a little bit of motivation to uh, close that significant gap. Awesome. And we'll link to that. And I love the look of the site and some of the categories, why we have a family finance board of directors, the Better Budget Toolkit, why life insurance for kids is a scam. I'm, I'm on that train. Uh, some good stuff. We'll link to uh, we'll link to that also in our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. Wait a for- minute. Wait a minute. There's one more. Oh. You forgot one more. What's that? Gold investing at best a hedge at worst completely silly. I'm going to have to read that one, Chelsea. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for playing. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Hey, we're going to talk about what's coming up next week on the show. Also, we're going to kick off our brand new game for the next eight weeks. Going to do something a little bit different. Going to mix it up a little bit. But first, I need to say a big thank you to everyone who's used our link at Amazon.com. Because if you shop at Amazon 
and you're not using our link, please do, because that helps out the show. And it's only a few more keystrokes. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Amazon takes you there, takes you to the same exact spot. You know what? They send us a little thank you for sending you their way. So thanks to everybody who's doing that. We really appreciate it. I know sometimes you can't use our sponsors, even though you know that we've vetted them completely. So this is still a way for you to help the show. It doesn't cost you any money. It costs you maybe, what, three, four seconds to put in those extra digits. Digits? Letters? Those extra letters. I suppose that's the one we're going to go with. All right. Let's talk about what's going on on the show next week because it's so great to be back. Didn't you love this week? Well, we're going to keep the pressure on because on Monday, Scott Trench joins us. Scott Trench works at Bigger Pockets and has a brand new book out. And I was very excited about the beginning of his book when he talked about making the first $25,000 is the hardest. And I said, you know what, let's get on and let's talk about as much of that as possible on the show. So whether you've already made your first 25,000, you want to verify that, or you know somebody that hasn't made their first 25, or you haven't made your first 25,000, Scott Trench, who's been there, done that, coming down to the basement and uh, talking some of the basics of personal finance that'll get you rolling. He's exactly right, by the way, that getting on that right path is exactly the way to go. And then on Wednesday, you know, these credit agencies, they know everything about you. They know everything about, how much do you know about the credit agencies that know everything about you? And they're these big empires and you don't know anything about them. Professor Josh Lauer at the University of New Hampshire has a book called Credit Worthy, talking about not just the credit agencies, but the history of credit in the United States. And we're going to talk about that. And uh, guess what? We got a special guest co-host that day from the Brown Ambition podcast. Mandy Woodruff is going to be sitting in for OG. OG can't make it on Wednesday's show. And then on Friday, another roundtable, but I love our Friday FinTech segment, Jobatical. Ever think about working someplace else in the world, but you wonder how you can afford to get there? Jobatical is your way to travel. Take a sabbatical from your job. Get a different job somewhere else around the world. Jobatical helps you do that. We're excited to talk to Lauren, their marketing vice president, on Friday in the middle of our roundtable. That's next week. Making your first $25,000, the history of credit and what you need to know about the credit agencies that know everything about you. And then a potpourri on Friday with a way to travel around the world on somebody else's dime. Good stuff. All right, guys. Have a fantastic weekend. Oh, you're yelling at your device, aren't you? Joe, you didn't describe the game. Let's tell everybody what the game's all about. For those of you new to Stacky Benjamins, on Friday, I play a game because OG's not here with me. My normal co-host is only here on Monday and Wednesday. So, because I'm a little bored, I'm like, let's play a game. And we've been doing that for a long time. And this time, because it's summer, and I'm a little brain dead in the summer, I reached out to the basement, our closed Facebook group, and man, do we have fun there. But I reached out, and Zach sent a t-shirt Zach's way, by the way, for this one. Zach said, I saw your appeal for games in the Facebook group. It got me thinking, since you guys like movies, perhaps something along the lines of, what movie title best describes each episode? Can't do that, Zach, but this led me to my favorite one. He said something along those lines. He said, obviously, it's a little different format than the previous games, but I thought about those, quote, what movie title best describes your sex life Facebook posts? Those are usually pretty darn funny. Or perhaps a more general, what movie title best describes Doug's romantic life? I don't think we're going to go there, but I would say this. We are going to go with Doug, my mom's neighbor, Doug. What movie title 
best describes the story of Doug's life. Let's say that Doug had a biopic written about his life. What would the title of that movie be? Needs to be a title of a movie that already exists, all right? So give me a title of a movie that already exists, and we're gonna we're gonna going to uh, pick out the top five OG and I at the end of this eight weeks, and we'll have a vote on exactly who's going to uh, take home the prize. And for those of you that uh, have been around a while, you know that we have a prize pack we put together specifically for the person who wins, and we also give them some stacking Benjamin swag, like we're sending to Zach for this awesome suggestion. And we got some other suggestions that were great too. I got a good suggestion for a game from Kimberly. Kimberly said, what if the Friday game hints were about or in internet memes instead of the first sentence of the show? You could talk about them on the show in case some listeners aren't cool enough to be in our Facebook group or use puns where the hints are the puns. Man, Kimberly, I tried and tried to think of how I would do that. And it, oh, that's a lot of work. If somebody comes up with that actual puzzle, though, some swag coming your way. So uh, if you've got ideas for the Friday game, bring those on because I am, I am all ears and absolutely love uh, seeing what people come up with with this game. All right, that's it. Game on. Send those, by the way, to joe at stackybedjamins.com when you get uh, your ideas for Doug's life. And I'll start sharing those early and let people know kind of what, what people are coming up with. All right, go stack some Benjamins, everybody. See you on Monday. Special thanks to Chelsea from mamafishsaves.com. Check out the link to her site on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Greg McFarlane appears courtesy of Control Your Cash. Len Penzo appears courtesy of the cryptically named lenpenzo.com. The Pope appears frequently on a balcony in Vatican Square. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie rudder and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Kathleen Selmans handles design, newsletter, and classroom opportunities. If you'd like to learn more, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash classes. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm pretty much the guy in charge of everything around here. Trust me, this well-oiled machine didn't get like this all by itself. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. What was that? It's called the medium sketch. The medium sketch? Yeah, it wasn't rare, and it certainly wasn't well done. Well, Stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. 
Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.